You can be seated and thank you, Ben, for uh, reminding us of our lines. God is always good. It's a scary thing to say outside of this building, but it's true. Hey, uh, we're in the book of Acts, and if you're using uh, the Bibles that we handed out for this series so you can take notes in it, we're on page 26. We're going to be in chapter 4, starting in verse 32. If you didn't get one of these, we've got some more coming, so keep an eye out. Um, we ordered a bunch, and they're all gone. I think somebody took about 200 of them and sold them on the open market. I don't know. A love for the word. And let me remind you what, when we're studying the book of Acts, we're studying uh, the disciple Luke's historical account of how the church got started. And so um, it's an amazing story. In fact, um, when Peter and the other disciples came out and spoke in tongues, which people tend to remember that, that was at Pentecost, which was a festival that the Jewish community celebrated once a year. It was basically their harvest festival, which would happen in May or June. And so when he began to preach at Pentecost, people had come to Jerusalem for this huge festival, and uh, thousands came to know the Lord. In fact, uh, 3,000 at Pentecost, and then a few days later at the temple, a couple of thousand more. So there are 5,000 people who came for the festival and became Christians, and their lives were completely and radically changed. Like, you need to get your mind around that picture because what we're about to read about is what was going on in this community of people that had come for a long weekend festival. Now they've become Christians. The spirit of the living God is in them. They're watching miracles and miraculous things are happening all around them. They're like, what has just happened to me? And they're sitting in front of these apostles who are going from home to home to teach everybody, this is what's happened to you, this is who Jesus is. They're giving them all the information they can. And these people are actually sticking around Jerusalem for several months. And as you can imagine, if, if you went for a long week, if you packed for a long weekend and you ended up staying like at the Bahamas for three months, you might need some stuff, all right? Or maybe you don't need anything. That's all you need is your Speedo and the beach. That's it. Some of you. All right. For these people, they needed to eat, and they didn't have credit cards. And so we're getting a little flavor of what this community was like. This is verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Talking about this massive community. I'm interrupting myself. So I'm just trying to be fair. All right. So all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money for the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So let's pray. Father, uh, could you take just a few moments on a Sunday morning and begin to set the course, Lord, for your work in our lives? And give us courage, Lord, uh, as you invite us now to partner with you what your Holy Spirit is doing in us for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. So, can we kind of walk through this passage? Because I'd like, to, I'd like to approach it this way, what it doesn't mean. And then we'll talk about what it means. So it starts with, they were one heart 
and they were one mind. Like, what does that mean? They were one heart and they were one mind. Like, like did they become Christians and then they became these mindless zombies that were just all, like they walked alike, they talked alike, like they were, they were radically the same in every way? Like, is it possible that when they became Christians, they all dressed alike? Like, so here's a pro tip. If you ever go to a church and everybody in the congregation is dressed alike, you know what they call that? Uh, There you go. It's a cult. That's not what happened here. This wasn't the first cult of Jesus Christ, all right? So listen to this. It's not like these people were all so radically different. They were culturally different. They were racially different. They had different languages. They had different customs. They all had different histories. They had different tastes. They had different likes. They had different dislikes. Like they were such a different and diverse crowd. So what does it mean that they had one heart and one mind? It also doesn't mean that some of you might think, well, it meant that that they were in harmony, that Jesus had come and now all is well with their soul. Now, we're going to read in the next couple of weeks Boy, there was discord, like Ananias and Sapphira. Like, they lied, they cheated, they tried to convince people they were better than they were, and they dropped dead. Like, yeah, it's a scary story. And then we're going we're gonna to talk about, uh, in chapter 6, that there were two Jewish factions in this first church, and one of their... Uh, the widows from this faction was not being fed. They were being overlooked, that there was racism, there was injustice, there was greed. So what does it mean? Well, we'll talk more about that another time, but let's keep going. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. Like, <clears throat> was this the beginning of the Jesus commune? Like, what's mine is mine and what mine is yours? Like, is this where... They were saying that love has no boundaries and you can just invade my space and you can take my stuff. Like, if I'm a part of this community, then it's all collective good. Is, it, is this the first commune that we've ever seen in Scripture where nobody owns anything? Is this the start of communism? It could be. Does that mean that all Christians need to, need to be good communists? Like, no, that's not what this means at all. In fact, uh, it says from time to time, those who own land or houses sold them. Is that saying that we can't own land or that we can't own houses? That if you own a house right now, you're not faithful to the Lord and you need to go immediately and sell it and come and bring the money to the church? Maybe. No, no, that's not what it's saying. Hey, because all throughout scripture, there are plenty of godly people that own land and they don't sell it. There's plenty of rich people in scripture who are godly men and women who deeply love the Lord. They weren't saying that unless you're poor, you're not righteous. They weren't saying that if you own anything, it means you don't follow Jesus. That's not what this is about. And then we get to the story of one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture, good old Joseph, who his friends called Barney. Barnabas, son of encouragement. And we see that Barnabas sold his land and brought it and laid it to the feet of the apostles. And let me tell you what this is. This is not a prescription of what you need to do with your possessions. That's not what this is. This is simply Luke saying, you're not going to believe it, but we got to do life with this guy named Barnabas. 
And he's an amazing guy. He's so amazing that we all just didn't call him by his name. We, his nickname was Son of Encouragement. And this is the first introduction. Let me tell you how encouraging Barnabas was. He went and sold a field so that this huge crowd of 5,000 people who were staying in Jerusalem longer than they planned could eat. Amazing guy. It is a prescription. It's simply a description of Barney. We'll learn more about him later in our series. So what is this? Well, there are a couple of principles in here. There are a couple of high values that we're seeing the Holy Spirit now bring to the surface in the church that he's still doing today. So let's talk about three, and I'll be done in 15 minutes. You believe that? You can do it. I promise you. There was a warning, there's an invitation, and there's a celebration. A warning, an invitation, and a celebration. The warning was really simple. The warning is, all of a sudden, we see the church, infused by the Holy Spirit, made alive by the work of Christ on the cross, things become secondary. In fact, they didn't see things as something to love, they saw things as something to use. To use things. <clears throat> you know the reason that we're shocked and we're so scared that I was going to say that, yes, you have to go sell your home and give it to the church is not because you're thinking, how wildly generous can you be with the things in your life? You're thinking, oh, no, because we love our stuff so much. We are in love with our stuff. It's the trap that so easily entangles us, especially when we have lots of stuff. Or maybe you have no stuff, and you're in love with everybody else's stuff. I don't know what that is, but the love of stuff is a trap. And isn't it amazing that the first thing the Holy Spirit does is unhinge this group of people from their love of stuff? That they're, they're able to be so generous that they'll sell the stuff and share everything that they have. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God said this. Now get this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have because, now this because is big. And God is saying, here's the key to how to be content and keep your life free from the love of money. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. In other words, God is saying, because I am with you always, you can actually let go of your love of money and, and actually step into contentment. In fact, what is contentment? Contentment is wanting what you have. And every one of you has everything you need right now to be content today. It's, it's not what ifs, only whens, or when I get. The Lord is saying that contentment you can have right now. Why? Because the Lord says, I'm with you and I'll never leave you. So have any of you ever taken your kids on vacation with you? If you're smart, you'll leave them at home, right? You know? bunch of free loafers, you know, because when you take your kids to the beach and then you go into that surf shop, what do they do? Their fingers become so sticky, like they're just grabbing everything, like crazy stuff. And they're going, hey, can, can, please, 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 bye, 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 bye. Have you ever had that experience? Some of you have not had that experience. <sighs> That's when as a parent, you, you, you draw from the deep well of quality pairing and you ask your child, how much money do you have? Well, I don't have any money. Well, I guess you're not buying anything. 
And then if your kid is wise, this is what they'll say. I don't have any money, but I got you. That's what this is about. Jesus is saying that as you go into your life, if you would unhinge yourself from the love of money, now it doesn't become the question, contentment is about do I have enough? Contentment becomes I got you and you got everything. Does that make sense? See, it's a gravitational pull to more. Do you all understand that? I mean, somebody, it was Kevin Mann. Where is Kevin Mann? He's not even in here. He's probably watching, you know, from the worship room. He's the one that three weeks ago introduced me to Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> you ever been there? Don't go there. You can't get off. It's like, it's like a vortex that sucks you in. And then you find yourself wanting to buy everything that's there, like, like figurine gnomes that you don't know what to do with, but you've got to have them. Because it just feeds that more, 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 yes, more stuff, more things, more. I got to have, I want my desire. And here's what scripture says. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus himself said, watch out, like watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because your life does not consist in abundance of process. <laughs> I'm going too fast. Remember, I got 18 minutes, all right? No, it's 12 now. All right possessions. Your life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Watch out. In other words, Jesus is saying you should have a strategy in your life that the, that the internal drive for more and to love things is so powerful in your life. You better mount a guard against it. You need to have a strategy in your life to where you're not going to dedicate your life to the love of things. How do we do that? I mean, I, I, I got all kinds of guards on my stuff. My car has an alarm. My house has an alarm. I got locks on all the stuff that I value. I got safes. I got, you know, I got my stuff in banks, and banks have all their security systems to where people can't get to my stuff. But how well worked out is your guard against stuff? Jesus says, be very careful. Because in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, it says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. So he's giving us a warning here. It's like, if you don't guard against it, no matter how much you have, it will never be enough. And if you dedicate yourself to a love of stuff, listen to this life diagnosis from God. You will live a life where you are never satisfied. That's staggering. Wait a minute. And so staggering because I am so committed to my stuff. If I have more vacations, if I have a bigger house, if I have more cars, if I get more money at work, or if I have more success, more, 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 more. And we're in this relentless pursuit of the very thing that Scripture says will never satisfy you. And we have no guards. Like we are willing victims to greed. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, but godliness and contentment is a means of great gain. Great gain. It says those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It says for the love of money is the root of all evil. Some people eager for money, for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
So hard. You know, one of my favorite authors on this topic uh, is not a Christian writer. Her name is Lynn Twist, and she's written, or she's run different organizations where they raise money, and she's written a book called The Soul of Money, which is worth a read. Uh, because even as someone who's not writing from a Christian perspective, she's exposing the truth of what we're talking about this morning. And she says, rarely in our lives is money a place of genuine freedom. Listen to this, joy or clarity, yet we routinely allow it to dictate the terms of our lives and often to be the single most important factor in the decisions we make about work, love, family, and friendship. Warning, use things. Invitation, love people. Love, love, love people. Dedicate your life to unhinging yourself from loving things and hinge it to loving people. In fact, when you start to love people, then you'll start to use things for what? To love people. It's crazy. This community, they actually saw each other. They actually cared about one another. And they cared about one another's needs. And they slowed down enough to make room for each other in their lives. And I'm going to tell you right now that, that I am so ready to step into the needs of my friends' lives. If I had a need, if I had a friend call me and says, hey man, I need you, and it's two in the morning, I'm like, man, I am there. Where are you? I'm on my way. And I love that, I love that about me. I love, I love, love being there for my friends. You know what the hardest thing for me to do in this world is? Is for me to make the call at two in the morning to my friend and say, I need you. I, I don't know, I don't know about how to do it. I'm horrible at it. I can, I can step into your need, but me be vulnerable enough with you to see my need, that is really difficult, but that's love. It's not just loving people by always being there when they need you. It's also loving to say, I need you there when I need you. And that may be the hardest part of love. And we talk a lot about, you know, emotional and relational health here. And the biggest part of relational health is not learning how to love other people. It's learning how to let people love you. And this community, they were learning how to love one another. They loved each other because they got to know each other. And that takes time. And it takes courage. And it takes a change in my values. Like, I have to slow down. I can't build community and work 80 hours a week. You know that. Jesus said in John 15... My commandment is this, love each other as I have loved you. That's the command of Jesus, to love each other. One of my professors in seminary, R.C. Sproul, he said in the New Testament, love is more of a verb than a noun. It's more of a verb than a noun. It has more to do with acting than with feeling. The call to love is not so much a call to a certain state of feelings as it is to a quality of action. And what he's talking about there is when I take up the principle that the Holy Spirit is birthing in me to use things and to love people, now I begin to understand that a lot of my prayers are just me not wanting to love people. Because like, if I say to the Lord, if you're in the hospital, Lord, they're struggling with cancer, would you give them comfort? The Lord's going to go, answer to prayer, get up and go. Wait a minute, what? No, 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 get, get up. <clears throat> Your presence will bring them comfort. Well, I don't know what to say. I, that doesn't matter. You're, go comfort them. Lord, would you help my friends? They're struggling to make rent this month. Fantastic. Go pay their rent. Wait, wait. I, Lord, you, 
somebody else. Like, <laughs> here they are, send them, you know? Lord, my friend's really struggling. I don't think they're making good decisions. Pray, God, you give them wisdom. Good. Now that you see that they're making a mistake and you have better wisdom, go and give it to them. Wait, wait hold, hold on. I don't wish Lord, I have neighbors that don't know you. Will you let them see you? Great. Go love them and let them see me in you. See, when we begin to pray, when we begin to use things, love people, we begin to understand in the kingdom of God, one of the great things is the Lord does a lot of his work through us. And it's fun because we get to love people. It's hard because then we got to love people. Because I'm going to tell you right now, Scripture says some stuff that I just don't like. Like in Philippians chapter 2, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I don't know if I would do anything. Like do nothing out of selfish ambition. Rather in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Value others above yourself? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I find it very easy to value me over you. In fact, here's what's crazy. I'm a miserable failure at this. I love stuff. I love stuff. And I'm going to be honest with you, I love stuff more than I love people. Because stuff is easier to love than people. I do. And I'm telling you, I could give you a list right now of all the mores that I would like in my life. Oh, it's, it's a long list. I have endless creativity when it comes to the stuff that I want. But my creativity seems to die when it comes to loving you. I need something to rescue me from myself. Look at verse 33. So they used things, they loved people. Why? Because with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. I got three minutes and I'm going to be done. You didn't think it could be done. Look what it says. God's grace was powerfully at work in them all. God's grace has power. And what is God's grace? God's grace is the unmerited one-way love of Jesus. God's grace is when he finds me in my greed and pours his love there. God's grace is when he finds me in my unlovableness and he loves me there. God's grace is when he finds me in the midst of my most darkest sin and he loves me there. God's grace is when he finds me in the place I'm not going to tell any of y'all about and loves me there, loves me there, loves me there. It's not like, well, hey, Randy, here's 1% of my love. And when you get that part of your life worked out, you come and find me and I'll give you some more. That's not it. It is all of us being poured there. All of it. It's not two-way. It's one way. I did nothing to earn it. I did nothing to deserve it. And God, through the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, is pouring it into my life. Boom! Grace is the power to meet us where we are. But here's what's so beautiful is grace doesn't leave us where we are. It begins to change us and transform us because that's what love does. And then it does something that's remarkable, that's out of this world. When he fills me up, he teaches me how to be a receiver. And then when I'm too full that I can't take it anymore, he teaches me how to be a giver. That's grace. Grace doesn't just go, well, I'm just going to fill your plate and eat, eat your full. It says, now that I've filled your plate, now, now you're going to learn the second half of this whole story, which is when you give it away, you're going to understand it more than you ever did when you got it. We talk about that all the time here. I mean, we talk about 
How do you love? You get loved. You know, we love because he first loved us. He fills up my cup with love, then I take it to a community of people and I spill out what he's given me. That's how we do forgiveness. How do I forgive? I go to the one who forgives me and I understand his forgiveness for me, then I take it. How do I become somebody who gives? I go to the abundance of my father and I realize all that he has given me. It's just outrageously, unbelievably generous and that teaches me how to be generous. What did he say? The competition for your heart is simple. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. We got him. And how do we know that? Well, the Lord in his immense beauty has brought us teachers. In their case, apostles. We don't have apostles today. We can talk about that another time. There are no apostles right now. Uh, But he brings us teachers. And uh, these teachers, our role, our calling is to every Sunday come here and say, guys, behold the word of God. Behold his grace and his gospel. Behold it. So that we're reminded to step out of our insanity, back into the insanity of who we are, who he's called us to be, and the abundant riches that he's filled our pockets with. And if you've been around Midtown for a while, we, we have so many gifted pastors here. We have eight pastors on our staff that work at different locations all over the city. If you've been around here for a while, every five weeks, one of them flows through here. We relieve one another um, every five or six weeks. And you've seen how powerful they are. And if you've been a part of this community, you know for the last two years, uh, the leadership here at the church has commissioned me to figure out how we can reach the rest of Nashville with the gospel. (laughs) No small task. Like, you know, just go get the rest of them, you know? And so I said, okay, okay, but we need somebody to come here and pick up the lion's share of this campus to continue to preach the gospel. And we've been praying for that guy. I told you last week, I think we found him. This week, I am so happy to tell you, we have found him. And here's the great thing. He comes with a wife and kids, which I think is the big win for us, all right? And they're here this morning, and I want to invite them to come up. I want to introduce to you Gary and Beth Anderson. How's that feel? (laughs) Hey, guys. Um, I'm assuming that most people here don't know you. Um, So why don't we start with something very simple and just tell us a little about you guys. Uh, First of all, I realized just a little bit ago that we are unintentionally matching today. And um, that is a result of the fact that I do not dress my husband. Um, And if you are a young couple, it is coming for you, unintentionally matching. Um, And in fact, I think we are unintentionally matching in that picture, too. Um, (laughs) It was a funeral, so I feel like... Oh like, my it's appropriate. <laughs> it's appropriate we so were in So I understand black. you match during funerals, but normal life you don't. All right. No, no, no. Okay. It's, it's scary how many times it does happen. That's my point. <laughs> um, we have four children. Uh, Maggie is 13 in seventh grade. Howie is 11 in sixth grade. Rose is eight in third grade. <laughs> it's 
been a long morning. Uh, and George is six in first grade. Uh, we met uh, when we were at Wheaton College in the Chicago area, and we were both RAs together and had a little bit of a young life overlap as well. And um, there's a discrepancy about when we actually first met, but we'll talk about that another time. So uh, what was the first date? Do you remember? Our friends set us up. We didn't know we were actually going on a date. It was, it was, it was a nice. pseudo-blind double date, yeah. All right. And then you knew, right? It was like, boom. Best day of her life. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit of the story. When did you guys uh, graduate from college? And then when did you get married? And You're going to make us age ourselves in front of all these people? It's okay. Be vulnerable, sister. We love you. Step in a community. <laughs> Uh, we graduated from college in 04. Um, we've been married 17 years. Dated for two years. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Maybe when y'all finished up with college, um, ministry was not on um, the horizon for you guys. What, tell us a little bit about that story. Uh, so I studied business and economics in college, uh, primarily because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, and I figured that would leave some doors open. And uh, some of you have heard, uh, my freshman year of life job was selling lumber in Buffalo, New York. And much respect to Buffalo, but I decided pretty quickly I didn't want to sell lumber or live in Buffalo for the rest of my life. Uh, so I went to work for an investment firm back in the Chicago area and spent the next 10 years working at that company five years uh, at our headquarters in Chicago, and then five years back uh, in the Cleveland, Ohio area, which was home, which is home, where I was from. Did you just get a whoop? Cleveland, all right, here we go. Cleveland? <laughs> Hudson. So This is my person right here. <laughs> it's so great. So uh, life was just rolling along. You guys, were you happy uh, with you in Ohio? Like, what? Tell us the story there. Like, yeah. So uh, life was as good as we could have hoped it would be. We moved back to my hometown. Uh, my parents lived around the corner. We had a great relationship with my parents. We had babies and we kept having babies and work was good. Um, but they're just over the course of several years was just this growing discontent inside of me that I didn't want to be there and shouldn't be there. And this is a longer story than we have time for this morning, but hopefully in the weeks and months and years to come, you, you'll get to hear it at some level. Uh, I just started to feel like I'm not sure that this is what God has called me to do with my life. And so um, through just a series of conversations and sermons and books I read, but primarily in the fall of 2014 as I was reading through the Gospels, which I had read through many, many times in my life before that, I just had this, this kind of gnawing sense that I'm not sure my life looks like the life that Jesus describes the lives of his disciples to look like. And uh, we could check every box that said evangelical Christian by white suburban North American standards. But uh, kind of at the end of the day, our lives were about us. They were about our comfort and our security and our ease and our financial security. And so we just started really wrestling with what does that mean and what is God calling us to? And so ultimately decided that he was calling us to make some big changes and I should have said this in the first service. That is not to say that if anyone is wrestling with, should I be where I'm at right now, that you should quit your job and go to seminary. <laughs> I don't recommend it. 
But ultimately, we decided that that was what God has for us. And so we sold our house and sold a bunch of our stuff and loaded up a U-Haul and went to the Boston area. To okay, this is where we stop. We're trying to get to know them a little bit. Beth, would you take the mic for a second and uh, maybe tell us what was that like to sell a bunch of your stuff and go to school? Randy's trying to make me cry in front of all of you. <laughs> Not easy. Uh, first of all, our kids were four, three, and one and a half when all of this went down. And if any of you are in that stage, like, I think that's my biggest affirmation of God's hand in this, because how do you, how do you do any, how do you make it day to day when you are in that stage of life? Um, it was hard. I, I left a house and friends that I thought I would have for the rest of my life. And, um, but there was an excitement too, like, we're, we're, blowing up our life and we're doing these crazy things for God and that's awesome. And then we got to Boston and we were in a very small house and Gary went to classes immediately. And I just, I vividly remember just like doing a 360 in the room I was in and I was surrounded by boxes and kids and no air conditioning. And I was like, oh my gosh, what have we done? Like, my life no is, air conditioning. That, that was the worst part. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> it, I do not belong in Tennessee. Why does God's... So God's plan doesn't always lead you to, like, lollipops and rainbows? You know, I think that was one of the hardest things is we kept talking in, you know, the months that progressed towards this, like, we need to sacrifice for the gospel and our lives need to look different and we need to make different decisions. But, like... Sacrifice is sacrifice. It's still hard. Like, even when you feel convicted about it, it's hard. And it was so hard for me to watch Gary go off to classes and feel like he was doing this thing that we blew up our lives to do. And I was at home doing my same rhythm of life without all my things and without my mother-in-law and without my group of friends. And you need mom friends in that stage. And I did not have any. And... Um, it was a really, really hard season feeling like this is what the wilderness feels like. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, because of time, we got so many questions for you, but could you take us through, like you graduated from seminary and how did you end up in San Francisco? Yeah. Uh, finished seminary, which is a miracle in and of itself. Uh, Beth has had more faith, uh, had enough faith for both of us to see us through that season. And God took us to uh, a beautiful church in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, where I started off serving as the associate pastor, and for the last couple of years have served as the lead pastor. It is an amazing congregation of people who love Jesus very much and who welcomed us in in a really incredible and beautiful way. It's a deeply multi-ethnic church, uh, and so I'm actually the first white pastor in the history of the church, and. Uh, and yet they have embraced us and loved us and let me learn how to be a pastor and how to be a preacher in the midst of them. Um, and it's been one of the harder decisions of our life to decide that God is calling us away from there. Uh, and we'll miss it. We'll miss those people in that place uh, dearly. Um, yeah. yeah. So tell us uh, why here. <clears throat> Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Because um, God is bringing you to Nashville. Absolutely. We are not San Francisco. No, we're... we're <laughs> We're not coming for the humidity. <laughs> You're coming for the camouflage wardrobe, right? There's no All doubt. Right. Okay. Yeah, no All doubt. Right. And yeah, matching. <laughs> um, we, have, so, uh, we have some connections to Midtown. Uh, my wife's cousin is Britta Cherry, who is Elliot's wife. 
Elliot's Who's the, the pastor, pastor at 12, 12 South. At 12 South. Uh, my wife's sister goes to the Creve Hall congregation. Uh, my father-in-law is good friends with John Rote, who's on staff here. And so when this opportunity became public, all of them sent it to us. And so uh, that started this process of just feeling like every step of the way God has been leading and drawing us to this place. Um, I watched the video that you guys made and I stopped watching it after about three minutes because I was like, they're looking for someone way more gifted and way more experienced than me. And yet um, we started having conversations and uh, Beth and I, both from a distance and then from some time spent here this summer, we have fallen in love with Midtown and with the vision uh, of what you all are trying to do here and with the people who are here. And so uh, we feel with a deeper conviction than almost maybe any decision we've made as a couple that this is where God is leading us. And so it's not going to be easy. I don't want to move again. I don't want to start my kids in new schools again. I don't want to, moving stinks, uh, all that stuff. But we, I, I feel the weight of replacing you. Uh, I had someone after the first service say, I'm nervous about this. And I was like, I am too. I'm not ordained, as we'll talk about. I'm nervous about that. But all of that just pales in comparison to how convicted we feel that this is where God is drawing us. And the last thing I just want to say, this is not the reason we're coming, but it's an incredible kindness of God. Uh, my wife's parents moved to Nashville in 2015. Two of her three sisters are here. Her other sister is in Memphis. I grew up in Cleveland, and two years ago, my parents moved to Knoxville, where I have an aunt and uncle and some cousins. And so it just feels like an incredible kindness of God to call us to the place where we have so much family. And because of that, partly that, but mostly because of how loved we have felt by the Midtown community as we've gone through this process. Neither one of us has lived in Tennessee, but it feels like we're coming home. And that is a, an incredible blessing to us, and we're so excited about it. We have so much to learn from you because most of us would move away from our families and y'all are moving <laughs> toward them. Uh, we want to hear more about that story. How does that work out? Like, we did it and now we're coming back. So we got right. a lot to talk about. So I didn't ask you this in the first service, but I'd love to know from both of you, how can we be praying for you? Yeah, just uh, the stuff I just talked about, just very selfishly, logistically to... Uh, move across the country again for the third time in seven years to start life over again, to uh, start our kids, pull our kids out of school in the middle of the school year and start them in new schools and new friends. Um, that weighs heavy on all of us. And so we would just covet your prayers for even just the logistics of getting our stuff across the country and, um, and finding a, a place of settledness here. Um, but also that just God would continue to keep us humble and hungry for him in the midst of kind of um, losing stability and routine and stuff like that over the coming months. Yeah, that's good. Um, I, I don't say this to be over-spiritual. You've been praying for us for two years now, yeah. and those prayers have already been felt by us, and I know that there's many of you who have already been praying for us in this journey, and um, I wish I could tell you the stories even from this week of how we have felt that and experienced that. And so um, I just want to say how grateful we are to the ways you have loved us, um, even unintentionally. We, we feel it all. Yeah. So uh, let me give you a little bit of some details about what will be happening. Hopefully they'll be here sometime this fall. They're wrapping things up out in California and start heading this way. Um, 
then Gary is beginning uh, this wonderful journey of getting ordained in the PCA. Uh, since he's not ordained in the PCA right now, that means about six months of study, written exams, oral exams, appearing before our presbytery. A lot, it's a lot of work, so pray for him. That'll be the lion's share of his work, uh, really, for probably till mid-spring. Um, hopefully, after that training and after that ordination, then there'll be a season of transition. And um, so we're looking at maybe late spring where uh, the person you see up here more often than not will be Gary and his leadership for this campus. So let's continue to pray for them. Um, this is an exciting day for us. And the reason it's an exciting day is because <clears throat> the Lord continues to add to our number. He says, pray for workers to come into the harvest because it it, the harvest is rich and it's ready. And the Lord is sending another worker in our community uh, to labor for your good and to labor for the good of this city. So uh, let me pray for them, and then we'll talk about your chance to get to know them a little bit. Lord, um, how do we say thank you? How, how do we praise you, Father? How do we do anything but just be in awe of this grace that we've been talking about and how you continue to hold Midtown, this messy, just unfinished little church here in Nashville, and you continue to breathe your life into us. And you continue to breathe your life into us through new campuses that are starting, the works in Napier, Lord. We, we thank you for those things. And now with Gary and Beth coming here to join this team and to labor for the good of your kingdom. And so, Lord, we as a collective community right now pray for them. We pray, Father, that um, you would be near in a very tangible way with them. We pray, Lord, you'd help work out the details of getting them here soon. We pray, Father, for their children, that school uh, would become a joy, that they would make friends quickly, and that their community would grow richly here. And that, Lord, we pray that not only would you bless them, but you would bless us through them. Um, so we pray these things because we know that you love them more than we do. Um, and we know that, Lord, you care a great deal about what you're working out, your plan set in place before the creation of the world for them to come and use their gifts in this place. Bless them, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.